Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Does God exist? I hope you won't be disappointed if I say that that's a question that can't really be settled adequately in a short talk. I won't even try, really. What I'll do instead is less ambitious, but I hope helpful nonetheless. I'll explore the possibilities and limits for using philosophy to learn about God's existence. Since this is a talk organized by the Thomistic Institute, you won't be surprised to hear that I'll be presenting things in a way that jives with St. Thomas Aquinas' approach. But I won't be doing that because I was invited by the Thomistic Institute. I'll be doing it because I think it makes good sense. So here's the order that I will be presenting things in. First, I'll give a brief um, outline or, or a brief sense I'll give a brief sense of what philosophy is in the first place. Second, I'll give brief discussions of reasons for believing in God other than as a result of philosophical argumentation. Third, I'll discuss the idea of believing in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation. Fourth, I'll consider the following question. If we have used philosophy to provide philosophical reasons for believing in God, what comes next, philosophically speaking? Fifth, I will look briefly at objections to God's existence. Sixth, I will point out the limitations of philosophy when it comes to God. Okay, so then, here's a quick account of what, of what philosophy is. It's the use of reason unaided by divine revelation to investigate the most foundational questions. In saying unaided by divine revelation, I mean that philosophy doesn't rely on the Bible or any other revelation from God, but instead just tries to figure things out by human reason alone. What I mean by the most foundational questions can be explained as follows, if I ask you what the past tense of jump is, you will tell me that it's jumped. If I ask you why it's jumped and not jump, you will tell me something about two types of verbs in English, strong verbs and weak verbs. If I ask you what a verb is, you will say something about action or something like that. If I ask you what words are, you will say something about sounds that express thoughts or whatever. The relevant point is this. These questions keep getting deeper and deeper, and they get, they're getting more basic or more foundational. The more deeper, the more deep, the deeper or more foundational a question is, the more philosophical it is. Probably there's no precise line between the questions that are philosophical and the questions that are not. But if you get as far as asking whether God exists, you're clearly in philosophy territory. 
So the question is whether we can know that God exists and whether we can know it solely on the basis of natural human reasoning powers. Now, the purpose of this talk is to think about whether and how we might come to believe in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation. But partly for the sake of completeness and partly for the sake of contrast, I want to indicate some of the ways we might come to believe in God other than by philosophical argumentation. The fact that those arguments are not the same as philosophical argumentation doesn't, automa doesn't automatically make them bad. Of course, they have their strengths and their weaknesses. But I'm not going to really go into them. I just want to indicate what they might be. The first way we might come to believe in God in a non-philosophical way would be by accepting God's existence on human authority, the authority of our parents, for example, or on the basis of the fact that nearly all humans in history have believed in God in some sense. Relying on the authority of other people is not always wrong. For one thing, sometimes there's just no alternative. But from the philosophical standpoint, it's a rather weak kind of support. A second way we might come to believe in God in a non-philosophical way would be on the basis of experience of God. Somehow, in some way, you have an encounter with God and thereby you come to know that God exists and even perhaps something of what God is like. The question of whether we actually can experience God is an extremely complicated one. If God is what Christians say, then we can't experience God by means of our natural powers because God transcends our powers. Think of ultraviolet radiation, which falls outside what human vision can see. Or think of the Earth's magnetic field, which sea turtles can sense, but which we cannot. Well, God is outside of what we can experience but in a much more radical way. Therefore, if people can experience God, it's probably because God himself has intervened to make this possible. We can't just spot God. He has to make his presence available to us. Now then, whether this can happen and what to make of it when it does is an important question, but it falls outside the scope of this lecture. Obviously, we can reflect philosophically on the possibility of experiencing God. That's what we're doing right now, in this second. Uh, and we can reflect on what some, such experiences might mean, but it would all be reflection on the basis of something that happened supernaturally, and therefore it's not really philosophy in the sense that I have in mind. A third way we might come to believe in God would be through divine faith. By this, I mean accepting something on God's own authority. He reveals it, and therefore we accept it, and we are moved to do so by God's own operation on our mind and will. God teaches us something, and he also moves us to accept his teaching on his say-so, rather than because we can conclusively see it for ourselves. Faith in this sense 
is the starting point for the science of theology, which is standardly defined as faith-seeking understanding. We accept things on faith, and then we go on to reflect on them in the hope of understanding them better. The idea that there could be faith in this sense is far from crazy, in my opinion. And if there is faith in this sense, then obviously it would be a great thing to have it. What more reliable starting point could there be than revelation from God? But I'm not going to say more about that in this talk, because accepting things on divine faith is not a philosophical method of inquiry. All right. Third section. Now I want to address the question of believing in God's existence on the basis of philosophical argument. Can we come to believe in God without relying on divine revelation or any other authority and without having had any spiritual or mystical experiences, but simply on the basis of philosophical reasoning? One approach would be to start with a definition or conception of God and then come to the realization that God is just the sort of thing that has to exist, that it's self-contradictory to suppose that God doesn't exist. To put the argument in a very crude form, think like this. If the word God means a perfect being, then obviously God must exist because otherwise he wouldn't be perfect, in which case he wouldn't be God. As I say, this isn't a very sophisticated version of the argument. Better versions are available. For what it's worth, Aquinas thinks that even in their best versions, these arguments don't work. Aquinas' strategy is different. For one thing, he doesn't start from a definition of God at all. Aquinas thinks that we can't really get an adequate definition of God's essence. God is too transcendent, too far above us for that to work. Instead of reasoning from definition to existence, Aquinas reasons from effect to cause. Now, of course, we reason from effect to cause all the time. If your window breaks, you reason that something must have struck your window. For example, a baseball. The window breaking is the effect, and the baseball hitting it is the cause. Well, Aquinas uses roughly this sort of reasoning to arrive at the existence not of baseballs, but of God. He actually offers a number of different arguments in a number of different works, but all, or anyway most of them, fit this general structure of reasoning from effect to cause. Here's an example of this kind of argument. The world exists, so therefore the maker of the world exists, and that's God. Is this a good argument? No. It's not a good argument. It's a bad argument. But why is it a bad argument? You might say it's a bad argument because we can't reason from effects to causes in the first place. That's a super radical reason for rejecting the argument. Such an objection blocks not only arguments from the world to God, but also arguments from broken windows to baseballs. An objection like this undercuts not just arguments about God, 
but almost all the reasoning found in science, engineering, and everyday life. I'm not going to get into that kind of radical skepticism here. I'm going to take it for granted that we can reason from effects to causes. The mere reason that we can reason, the mere fact that we can reason from effects to causes doesn't mean that there's no difficulty in arguing for God's existence. There's a special problem that needs to be dealt with. The problem is that when you reason from effect to cause in the ordinary way, you arrive at a conclusion like this. There's a cause, and it's the sort of thing that could produce the effect that we started from. So for example, if something breaks your window, you can infer that it had enough kinetic energy to break your window. But you can't infer more than that. And you especially can't infer that what broke your window had infinite power. Perhaps you can see how this applies to arguments for the existence of God. The argument, as given earlier, went like this. The world exists, therefore the world maker exists. Now, in order to make the world, a world maker would have to be pretty impressive. It would have to be very intelligent and very powerful. But we're supposed to be arguing for the existence of God. We're supposed to be arguing for the existence of something that is infinitely intelligent and infinitely powerful. Because our world is finite, the fact that a world maker made it doesn't prove that the world maker is infinite. But that means that we haven't proved that our world maker is God. What's more, how do we know that the world maker doesn't have a maker of its own? Little kids ask this question all the time. But who made God? In other words, if there's a world maker, why isn't there a world maker maker? This question is important because if there is a world maker maker, then the world maker apparently isn't really God. Okay, so we've been looking at the argument that goes, there's a world, therefore there's a world maker, and that's God. You've probably guessed by now that Aquinas' argument doesn't go that way. Aquinas-style arguments are indeed arguments from effect to cause, but they don't say merely that when there's an effect, there must be a cause. They argue that when there are effects and causes, there must ultimately be an ultimate cause. Not just a cause, but an uncaused cause. This is how you arrive at the existence of God. So how do you argue for an uncaused cause? Roughly, very roughly, you argue like this. Things around us have causes. Those causes might themselves have causes. If so, they are caused causes. And those causes might be uncaused causes, might be caused causes themselves. But it can't go on like this forever. At some point, you have to reach an uncaused cause. The crux of it is the claim that it can't go on forever. Why can't it? Why can't we have an effect that comes from a cause, that comes from a cause, backwards forever? The reason 
is that caused causes depend on their causes, and it's not possible for everything that exists to be dependent. Ultimately, there has to be something independent. Without that, there literally wouldn't be anything at all. Let me provide some images to make this more concrete. First, think of light shining from a mirror. Mirrors don't just shine all by themselves. They only reflect light that is aimed at them. In short, they need to be illuminated. Now, a mirror can reflect light that comes from another mirror. This happens all the time, actually. But it can't go on like this forever. If it's just mirrors all the way back, you'd have nothing but darkness. You need something that doesn't just reflect light, but something that emits light as a source. At some point, you need a light bulb or a sun. You need an unilluminated illuminator. Second, think of a boxcar in motion. Boxcars don't just move. They need to be pulled. A boxcar can, of course, be pulled by another boxcar happens all the time. But it can't go on like this forever. It can't be boxcars all the way down the line. At some point, you need a locomotive. You need an unpulled puller. It's okay for a cause to be dependent, but it's not okay for every cause to be dependent. Think of it this way. Suppose we agree that I'm going to buy your computer. I say that I'd like to and suppose, yeah, um, I'd like you to hand it over to me right now, and I'll give you $500 tomorrow. Suspicious, you ask me to show you the $500. Well, I say, I don't have it right now. I'll be borrowing it from my brother. Suspicious, you ask my brother to show you the $500. Well, he doesn't have it right now, but he'll be borrowing it from his poker buddy. It's okay if it goes back like this for five more steps or even for 500 more steps. But at some point, someone has to actually have the $500. Not everyone can be borrowing. It's okay to borrow from someone who is himself borrowing. But somewhere down the line, there has, there has to be a lender who isn't himself a borrower. There has to be a source that doesn't itself receive from some prior source. The guy with the $500, I mean the guy who actually has it in his hands. That guy is different from all the other guys. The other guys, even if they are lenders, are also borrowers. But the guy with the money is a non-borrowing lender. He's a creditor who isn't a debtor. He actually owns the money. He's like a light bulb rather than a mirror. He's like a, mo uh, a locomotive rather than a boxcar. So the series ends in something very different from all the other items in the series. We've been exploring analogies that were meant to get you thinking about the difference between caused and uncaused causes, but they are only analogies. Light bulbs, locomotives, 
and guys with $500 are uncaused relative to mirrors, boxcars, and borrowers. But in truth, they too are caused causes. A truly uncaused cause would be far more different from other things. The fact that the argument ends up in something so different, so very, very different, is what opens up the possibility that the argument ends with God. The argument ends not just with a cause, and not just with an uncaused cause, relatively speaking, but with what is, absolutely speaking, a truly and absolutely uncaused cause. Aquinas says, and this all men call God. Now, just to be clear, let me say, I have not given a full-blown version of any of Aquinas' arguments for God. At most, I've gestured at some of them. There isn't time here to go into all the details, in part because the topic of this talk is rationality and belief in God more generally. But what I've said does, I hope, give some sense of the general structure and strategy that Aquinas employs. I have said that Aquinas ends his arguments by saying, and this everybody calls God. Maybe you think that's too fast. An uncaused cause is admittedly much more than a world maker. For example, since it's uncaused, we already have an answer to the question, who made it? Namely, if you ask that question, it shows that you didn't understand. It's uncaused, so nothing made it. But still, maybe we aren't yet in a good position to use the G word. The mere fact that something is an uncaused cause might not be enough to make it be God. That leads us to the next section of this talk. Suppose you have spent months and years doing enough reading and thinking and discussing to conclude that some version of a causal argument really works. It really is a sound argument. Maybe you've concluded that Aquinas' arguments work in the form that he gave them. Or maybe you have concluded that they work in slightly improved versions. Or maybe you have concluded that Aquinas' arguments have massive flaws but that some other arguments work. What next? Before answering that, let me mention that if Aquinas' arguments turned out to be bad, he wouldn't be angry at you for pointing this out. On the contrary, he would thank you. For one thing, he holds that if someone gives a bad argument for God, we shouldn't act as if everything is okay because at least they're on the right team. We should shoot the argument down, Aquinas says, lest people think that belief in God is based on this bad reason. For another thing, Aquinas would thank you because you would have helped him get closer to the truth. This is the really great thing, admitting, of, this is the really great thing about admitting that you are in error. The instant you admit it, you aren't in error anymore. Anyway, suppose you have found a good argument that arrives at the existence of an uncaused cause 
an unreceiving source, something like that. What then? What comes next, philosophically speaking? The short answer to this question is, you have to keep thinking. Maybe that's good, good advice in general, although not always. But it has a special meaning here. If you think that you have already proved the existence of God, you will not have proved everything that anyone might want to prove about the existence, about God. It's tempting to think like this. Hooray, there's an uncaused cause of change. God exists. His son Jesus is my personal savior. The Catholic Church is here to provide me with the fullness of the means of salvation. But actually, if you think about it, all of that stuff goes way, way beyond the idea that there's an uncaused cause of change. Even though Aquinas uses the word God already when he comes up with the idea of an uncaused cause, all he means at that point is you got an uncaused cause. That's all that's been proved so far. Now, if you think that Aquinas has jumped the gun and it's not right to start using the word God yet, this gives you even more reason to go on. You want to learn more about this extraordinary being. It might turn out to be so extraordinary that it would be worth calling it God. The point is that the proofs only prove so much. There's an awful lot that they haven't proved. By the time he's finished giving proofs for God, Aquinas hasn't proved that, he, that the uncaused cause has a mind. He hasn't proved that it created us. He hasn't proved that it loves us or that it even knows that we exist. For all we know, it's just some kind of force. Now, of course, Aquinas does think that God has a mind, that he created us, and so on. But Aquinas believes these things only because of further logical reasoning. Each new point requires its own set of arguments. In fact, it takes Aquinas 50 pages of highly compressed writing in small print to arrive at the conclusion that there's only one God. You, it's amazing. When you get to that point, you realize, wait, this whole time there might have been 20 gods? He doesn't like mention that, but you realize it. Okay, how does Aquinas take all these extra steps? Well, yeah, to answer that question, I'd have to go through all of them, and that would keep us here all night, but, so I'm not gonna do it. But I will make one a very important point. To a significant extent, the further reasoning that Aquinas goes through is the unfolding of the idea of God that he arrived at in the initial argument. What the, arg what the initial kind of argument um, has at its kernel, at its core, is the idea that God is where the box stops. He's not just a cause, he's an uncaused cause. He gives, but what he gives, he didn't receive from somewhere else. He didn't receive it from anywhere else because just by his nature, he has it. He can't not have it. To put it differently, God is completely perfect. 
From that insight, Aquinas is able to go on to argue for lots of other things about God. If God is perfect, then he needs to have a mind, for example. So while it's true, as I said earlier, that Aquinas' arguments don't really give us a well, I mean, Aquinas' proofs for God don't give us a very detailed picture of a personal God, they do contain the seeds of that picture. And Aquinas gets those seeds to grow by further reflection. Now I want to say a brief word about objections to God's existence. For Aquinas, as for most medieval philosophers and theologians, it's standard operating procedure not just to state your views and not just to give arguments for your views, but also to state objections to your views and to answer those objections. Just think of what the world would be like if politicians did that. <laughs> Aquinas lists two objections to God's existence, and they are probably the two most important ones. First, that there's evil in the world, and that that's enough to show that there is no God. Second, that we don't need to believe in God because we already have good enough explanations of everything. In a way, Aquinas' answer to the second objection is already lurking in his arguments in favor of God. Aquinas thinks it's false that we can give ultimate explanations of everything without appealing to an ultimate explainer, an ultimate cause. Of course, we can give explanations of things without talking about God. But those explanations involve appealing to things that themselves require explanation. When we have done something like that, we have indeed given an explanation, but we haven't given an ultimate explanation. As for the first objection, Aquinas' answer goes well beyond anything contained in his arguments for God's existence. What he says in the particular text that I'm, in, that I'm concerned with is short but deep. Someone who thinks that evil is an objection to God apparently thinks that the only proper way for God to deal with evil would be to destroy it. But Aquinas thinks that there's another alternative. God can allow evil to exist, but then draw a greater good out of it. There's a lot packed into that thought. But at the very least, it shows that the topic of God and evil is more complicated than it might initially appear to be. It is indeed a mysterious idea that God might allow evil rather than just snuff it out. But it seems far too quick to say that the existence of evil just flat out disproves God's existence. Aquinas' way of doing philosophy can get you some pretty substantial results. It can get you to the idea that God is good, that God is an immaterial spirit, that God is all-powerful, he knows everything, he created everything, he guides everything, and so on. 
it might even get you to the idea that you should love and reverence God and pray to him. However, it has to be admitted that it would still be a pretty cold and abstract and philosophical kind of religion. No burning bush, no crossing of the Red Sea, no return from captivity in Babylon, no Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, no sending of the apostles to the whole world. So the philosophical, the, mere, the purely philosophical approach that we can find in Aquinas um, doesn't get us anything that most people would call religion. It's a philosophical religion, but not, you know, a religion religion. For Aquinas, that requires getting beyond philosophy by accepting revelation. That takes you into theology territory, which Aquinas is also into. Revelation goes beyond human reason. It tells us things that we could never prove on our own, and it gives us utter confidence about things that would otherwise just be based on our own potentially flawed philosophical reasoning. It might be objected that relying on revelation is acting like a weakling. Shouldn't we do things under our own power? To that, I think Aquinas would give two answers. First, if God really is God, then he's so far above us that it's ludicrous to think we could have a good understanding of him just on the basis of our own powers. Second, humans are weak and flawed, and if Aquinas says so, that counts for something, because very few humans have ever been as smart and hardworking as he. So maybe humans are pretty limited, in which case it would make sense for them to rely on divine help if they can get it. In any case, whether you accept the possibility of divine help or not, it's worthwhile being aware not only of the strengths of philosophical reasoning, but also of their limitation. Anything else would be unphilosophical. So let me conclude with a few concluding remarks. As you can tell from what's been said, Aquinas thinks that philosophical reason has a lot of power to learn about the existence and nature of God. At the same time, he also thinks that philosophical reason has serious limits. Some of those limits are practical. Philosophy takes a lot of time. It's easy to make mistakes. Some of those limits are limits in principle. God so transcends the human mind that many important truths about God simply cannot be discovered by humans without divine revelation. It's important to see both the power and the limits of philosophical reason. If all we see are the limits, then we'll think there can't really be any dialogue between Christian believers and others. Religion to us would be exclusively based on faith, and those who aren't believers would seem to have no access to God in any way until they had accepted divine revelation. There's another problem if philosophy has nothing to say about God. Of course, divine revelation is adequate, but it might not always be adequate for us. 
Revelation is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible makes you think that God is an immaterial spirit, and then you turn the page and you read something about God's holy arm, not to mention his footstool. Philosophical reason can help us come up with intellectually solid and rigorous interpretations of scripture, which sometimes uses a lot of figurative and metaphorical language. Again, the point isn't that the Bible needs philosophy, but that we need philosophy to understand the Bible. Or anyway, it helps. Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, said once that it wasn't a coincidence, but divine providence, that the Son of God became incarnate at a time and place when philosophy had made enough progress that people could have a solid understanding of what had occurred. Having praised philosophy both for its ability to give us access to God without revelation and for its ability to help us understand revelation, let me now end with a reminder that it has its limits. St. Augustine compared the philosopher without faith to a traveler who is on top of a hill and who can from there catch a glimpse of where he needs to go, but who can't figure out how to get there. Only through revelation as guide can we actually find the right path. So I think that Aquinas would say this, philosophy is important, but it's not enough to tell you everything you need to know, and especially not the most important things you need to know. Thank you. Yeah, of course, this is the fun part starts now from my point of view. Yeah. You're going to have to shout them out, I guess. Or objections, complaints, grievances. Yeah, so do I agree with St. Thomas? Yeah, um, I think that some versions of the argument look good. Um, he gives five arguments in the Summa Theologiae. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, he gives a different version of the first argument. He gives a lot of different arguments. I think that the more you study them, the less sure you become about precisely which argument he's giving. There are different ways to interpret them. So there's, so at first I'm just sort of being evasive. Um, I'm just saying like there's a way in which there's no single argument. Um, that said, yeah, I think that some versions of them, um, oh, the other thing that's complicated is that some of them at first glance seem to be tied up with um, sort of pre-modern physics in a way that is probably not a good thing. Um, so. But some of them, I do think the basic idea does work, that um, you, can't have, you can't have everything be dependent. You have to have something independent. Um, so I do think that, yeah.
Yeah, so, so the question is, if would the existence of the uncaused cause be self-evident? It depends on what you mean by self-evident. Um, sometimes philosophers say, I'm trying to remember if Aquinas says this, but somebody says this, some things are self-evident, but only to the wise. That's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? But anyway, I mean, it's sort of, I guess I'm more inclined to say no than yes. I mean, one meaning of self-evident is that if you know the, you take a sentence, and if you understand the meaning of all the words in the sentence, then you can just see that the sentence is true. So like, every blue dog is blue. Okay. Um, I don't think that God's existence is self-evident in that way. Um, I do think God's evidence can be known by philosophical reason. And whether that makes it self-evident, I don't, I mean, I know, I mean, it depends on what you mean by self-evident, you know. But it's not obvious, I will say that. I mean, sometimes we use self-evident as a, a sort of way of meaning obvious. I certainly don't think God's existence is obvious. I mean, not philosophically obvious. It's, to a lot of people, it's just obvious that God exists, and maybe in a sense they're right. But that the philosophical arguments are really good arguments, that is not obvious. Could I elaborate more on the problem of evil? Whoa. Only a little bit more. <laughs> so it's actually a huge problem, and it has a bunch of different versions. Um, the way Aquinas lays it out is actually kind of strange and not our version of the problem of evil at all. He says that if you have, like, two opposed things, and one of them is infinitely power, it'll just shove the other one out of the way. So if you have an infinite good, it's just going to shove evil out of the way. Um, the sort of modern version of the problem of evil goes something more like this. If God really knows everything, if he's really all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, then there shouldn't be any evil. Right? If there's evil, then it's either because he doesn't know what to do about it, or he knows but he's incapable, or he knows and he's capable but he just doesn't care about us. That's a different kind of argument, a very different kind of argument, really. Um, now, there are a lot of different ways that people respond to it. A standard response, not a dumb response by any means, is that by allowing evil, God gives us opportunities to sort of grow in moral strength. These are sometimes called soul-building arguments. This kind of builds up the strength of your soul. I don't think that's a bad thing to say. What bothers me about it, though, is that sometimes evil is, is really bad. <laughs> and... Um, and sometimes it happens to people who are very small and weak. Sometimes they're children. And it's just not so clear how they are supposed to be getting all this soul building out of it. Um, and the argument can kind of come across as like, well, if you're sad that that terrible thing happened to you, you just didn't like dig deep and, you know, suck it up and benefit from it, you know? You gotta just try harder. And I don't think that's sort of the right message to be sending. Um, not just because it sounds mean, but also just because I think it's, it doesn't cover all the cases, right? That doesn't explain 
you know, a one-year-old baby being tortured or something. So I think it has to be admitted that if it's right to say that God allows evil in order to bring greater good out of it, it's got to be something bigger. And in, I mean, now I'm going to—it's going to sound terrible, but I think there's something kind of mystical about that, or or mysterious about that. I'm not entirely sure that it can be answered philosophically in a completely adequate way. I mean, I think just in terms of human reasoning, you can see, yeah, there's a lot of times in this world where bad stuff happens, but a lot of good comes out of it. And I can see that my life, if, I, if certain bad things that happened to me, if they hadn't happened, I'd actually be worse off. It's kind of weird, but it seems true. So there's a kind of plausibility that good comes out of evil. But as a way of explaining all of evil, it's not clear that it can go all the way, you know. And I think we have to, we sort of have to return to a point, and now we're getting theological, right? That's what I say when I say I don't think it can be completely philosophically handled. Um, one of the main symbols of Christianity is Christ crucified. That's somebody who had the power to overcome evil, right? I mean, Jesus was God. He could have just zapped all those Romans. Easy. But he didn't. He allowed the evil to happen to him. And that's a very strange thing. Um, but I think that somehow what that shows is that sometimes the response to evil isn't merely to overcome it, but somehow to go through it. And, I, and if that sounds like I don't have a lot, it's because I don't have a lot. I think there's something mysterious about evil. Um, but I, th and I think the idea that, I think it just sort of is part of Christianity that while obviously a lot of times you should like get rid of evil when you can, that there are times where evil has to be passed through instead. I hope that didn't just make it worse. <laughs> Yeah, so the, are those the only two arguments I get in a nutshell? That's a great question. Um, I'm very scared to say those are the only two because um, I'm not good at making complete lists. Um, you could hold that the uh, I think you could build an um, yeah, you could hold. You could try to build an argument. I'm not. I'm not I'd have to. I'd have to scratch my head a minute to think of how to work out the details. You could try to build an argument, for example, that the just the very idea of God is internally inconsistent. That somehow, like being perfect and being like being um, morally. So, for example, somebody could say that. Um, okay, so this would work. Somebody said if you were infinitely powerful, then you could do anything you want, but then. You could never be morally good because being morally good involves overcoming obstacles and resisting temptation. And stuff. I don't think that's a very good argument, but I, I think somebody could build an argument like that, and it would have it would feel plausible. You know, I don't think it's a stupid argument either. Um, to show that they could try to be arguing that the very idea of God doesn't make sense. The other thing, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not sure that they're the only two. I think they're the two main two. Um, but that's at least one, one third one. Mm -hmm. So the bias for like 
Yeah, well, for what it's worth, I haven't actually given any of his arguments. I gave a kind of sketch of what three or of a sort of general structure that three or four of his arguments fit into. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe in a way, all five of his main arguments fit into that sketch, but in, in rather different ways. So I've left, uh, you know, you have to get into a lot more details. Um, in a way, what I was giving was like something that could get you ready to start dealing with his arguments. Maybe I didn't make that clear enough. Um, I do want to address the specifics of your points. Um, so the second was about what time, whether time was circular. I'm very suspicious of the notion that that actually makes sense. Um, but if it did make sense, um, then you'd just be going around and around with nothing, I think. Um, or you would have, or what you'd be committing to is the idea that something can cause itself. And I don't think self-causation makes sense. Um, I mean, like, I can cause my cheek to turn red by smacking myself in the face, right? But that's like a part of me causing a different part of me. That's not the same as what I mean by self-causation, where the whole thing would cause the whole thing. Um, the other point that you made, oh yeah, what if everybody's lying and nobody has the $500? Well, that's definitely possible, right? But, but to take the analogy then and move it back to the argument for the existence of God, that would be like saying there was, there is no world. There is nothing that exists. Um, and so therefore we don't have a good argument for the existence of God. Well, that would be true, actually. Like if nothing existed, I mean, partly because we wouldn't be here to have the argument, but even kind of leaving that one out, we wouldn't be able to build that argument. That's true, but I think I'm sort of taking it for granted that there is stuff that exists and there are causal relations. Um, but it is interesting to bring this out because, you know, I mentioned that other kind of argument that relies on the definition of God. That kind of argument doesn't depend on the existence of the world. It's an interesting fact that Aquinas-style arguments, you just have to start with the existence of the world around you which, you know, some philosophers might be unwilling to do. And I wasn't joking when I said that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not entirely following. So, I mean, I think you're like abstracting an element out. His argument, as I understood, it had to do with time being circular. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not bringing, you're not engaging that point, right? Right? Yeah.
Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah, no, I know. And, um, sometimes the hardest part of philosophy is figuring out what your question is. Uh, um, no, it's right that... Um, so the idea that... So, so Aquinas likes the idea that there are caused causes. He's completely okay with that. But he thinks that you just have to have some other kind of cause that um, it causes other things, but nothing causes it. Now, sometimes the way people think of that is that you're like going backwards in time, like yesterday, the day before, the day before, and then at the very beginning, God is standing there getting it started. But very interestingly, so in the Middle Ages, they had some debates about whether you could prove that the world had a first moment in time. Like all these medieval guys thought that it did because the Bible pretty much says so. But they, what they disagreed about is whether you could prove it. Some thought that you could prove that the world had a beginning in time. And some thought that you could not prove it. Aquinas was one of these. He said, look, it's actually theoretically possible for God to make a world that never had a beginning. It always went backwards in time. He didn't, but he could have if he had wanted to. Um, which is a very surprising idea. Um, but if, if God had done that, then the world would go back infinitely in time, and then God would, so to speak, be standing outside the world, holding the whole thing up, the whole, or if you want to reverse the metaphor, propping it up, right? So everything that would, would be dependent on this independent cause. Um, I don't know if I'm starting to address any of these. Ah, yeah, so there's always, this is, this is part of a much larger problem in, in reasoning about God, because, so on the one hand, it looks like God has to be somewhat similar to things that we think about, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to think about God. But on the other hand, if God was exactly like the stuff we normally think about, then we wouldn't really be thinking about God, right? So if God was exactly like a turnip, then when I thought about God, I would just be thinking about a turn, right? So, so, and of course, if the argument is going to have any interest at all, it's going to arrive at some very, very bizarre being, right? It, it has no cause. It's not causally downstream from anything. I mean, if you reflect on that a lot, it's actually almost frightening. So um, somehow we have to walk this very fine line. We have to God it has to be similar to the things that we experience, and indeed, in a certain crazy way, similar to us, because like we have mind, we have will, the way God does. And yet, we have to keep trying to think about what it would mean to have those things in the uncaused, unsourced, independent way that God does. So like, like God is all-knowing. Now, we are not all-knowing, but even if we were all-knowing, that would be because we had, like, read all the books. But it's not like God read all the books, and now he knows, right? He didn't learn, God never learns things. So the way in which God, the God's way of being and our way of being are actually shockingly different. They have to be somewhat similar, though, and this is a very hard thing to get right.
here and then here. So you. Okay, you. Yeah, so when, if you start with, let's say you think that some version of the uncaused cause argument works, then when you're done, at that point what you've got is uncaused cause. And the question is, can you get farther? Now, if you could learn, if you could figure out that in anything that was an uncaused cause was also all-powerful, was also all-good, was also all-knowing, then you, you, it would be, you'd sort of be building it up, and at a certain point you're going, yeah, that, I think that's a god, right? Um, and I think people are going to differ at what point along that spectrum they're going to go, that looks like a god to me. Aquinas says it kind of early. Some people might say it later. I think in a way it doesn't matter, actually. If, if you agree on what you've proved, the point at which you start using that special word seems somewhat less important. But each of those steps has to be earned. You can't just go uncaused cause, boom, I get all my theology. That's cheating. Yeah. Yes, sister. Yeah, I mean, don't we know more than St. Thomas? Sure, in some areas. Um, and some of St. Thomas's arguments are bad. But his Arguments for the existence of God mostly don't depend on outdated stuff. And as far as I can tell, the ones that do can usually be like updated and fixed, so you can come up with like a different version of them using modern physics. It's possible that some of them aren't like that. Um, I used to be more confident of this, and then I was talking to this, um, um, maybe some of you know Father Thomas Davenport, He's this Dominican priest who's also got a doctorate in physics. Um, this kind of thing you should check in with the people who know physics. Yeah, so some of the arguments I'm less certain of. I think they need more tuning. But some of the arguments just don't depend on modern science at all. So the fact that there's a lot of stuff that we know that Aquinas didn't, it turns out that it's not relevant to these arguments, at least some of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you. Yeah. I, I missed the very last thing you said. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, so when you say uncaused cause, um, that could be interpreted in different ways. I'm, I'm partly just repeating the question now. Um, so you could think of the uncaused cause as being like inside of the world, sort of causing it from within, 
right? Or you could think of it as being outside the world. Um, oh, and then, and then you talked about occasionalism. I'll come, to the, I'll come back to that in a second. So I think if you had to choose, Aquinas would say that God is outside the world, causing it from the outside. I think that's the safer way to put it. Um, you could try to say that, I think the idea, the, yeah, I'm pretty confident of this. What you, the best way to put this is that God is outside the world, but he acts on it from the very inside of the world. He's not like on the edge, banging on the edge, right? He can act directly somewhere or other. St. Augustine says that God is more interior to me than I am to me. That's a very strange thing to say. But I think Aquinas would like that. God causes our very existence. He doesn't just add stuff to us. Like, it's not like we're there and then he adds something. He causes the very fact that we're here at all. So in that sense, he's acting on us, so to speak, from the inside out. But he himself is outside of the world. Um, now, the question of occasionalism is super interesting. So that's a word that philosophers sometimes use. Some people think like this. You, you want to say, God is great. God is the cause of everything. So you don't want, you want to stick to that. It seems like really important. So you deny that anything other than God ever causes anything because you don't want God to have to like give way and share his causation. So for example, if I had um, you know, a match here and I used, lit the match and then used it to light my paper on fire, the occasionalist would say that, that actually God lights the paper on fire, but the match being there is the occasion on which God lights the paper on fire. So the match doesn't light the paper, God lights the paper, but he does it when the match is there because, I don't know, like he has a plan. Like he, he has a reason for doing it that way. Okay, so Aquinas is aware of views like this. Um, and he says that the problem with this view is that it looks like it's a way to exalt God's causation, but it actually fails to appreciate how amazing God's causation is. Because God is... God's causal powers are so amazing that he can actually create things that are themselves causes. He can not merely make inert things, which he then shoves around. He can make things that have their own causal powers. So um, he's very anti-occasionalist. Yeah, I think so. So the first thing, wait, there was something you said at the beginning that made me realize I wanted to fine tune something I had said, but now I've forgotten. <laughs> um, 
Aquinas, I mean, Aquinas thinks that the world is this, that the fact that, that every, that things depend on caused causes, that that can't go back forever, that means that everything in our, you know, in the ordinary world is dependent, and therefore it has to depend on something, and that something is God. And he just thinks that that claim um, can be dissociated from the claim that there was a time way long ago when there wasn't anything at all. So at least theoretically, um, the world could have gone, could always have been existing. This is the thing I wanted to clarify now. I'm finally remembering it. It would have been necessary for God the whole time to be lifting it up. So it's not like God, the world had always existed and God arrived and was like, hey, look. A world, this is so amazing, right? It's just that God would have chosen to make the kind of world that never started. It's not clear. I mean, Aquinas says this is a theoretical possibility, right? Um, it's, that might be right. I mean, and you know, for Aquinas, God is outside of time. So it's not even like he was always already there, so... Um, he's just time just doesn't apply to God in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm addressing your question. Oh. Yeah, I mean, if you think this is where you have this is where the arguments start to get more technical and probably have to be moved away from the arguments that look like they're based on scientific reasoning and, and they have to get more quote unquote metaphysical. But um, there's this question of whether once something exists, whether it sort of automatically just keeps on existing. Um, and if you think that and you think there's always been stuff, then you might think that, well, I'm not exactly sure with how, well, there, there was no first thing. There's always been something, and it just keeps, keeps going. Um, but I think Aquinas would want to say, no, it's not like that, because just for the thing to keep going, that too is dependent. God, that too needs to be supported. That's a harder argument to make. Yeah. Yeah, so the question was, who's like the best developer of Aquinas' arguments, and then who's the best attacker. Um, especially for the first one, a hard, um, in a way it's hard because things can be best in different ways. Yeah. But there are, people are, are, are often um, trying to d develop these arguments and figure out what's a good way to make them work. Um, and sometimes people who are big Thomas Aquinas fans are like, yeah, but like this argument, I'm just not seeing it, you know.
Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what if somebody says, why do we need causes at all? So I think there's sort of two questions here. One question is whether we need causes for anything ever. And that, it just seems to me like it just is true that there are causal relations in the world. You know, windows do break because baseballs hit them, and that really was the reason why. Um, now, if somebody just insists that they don't see that, that's hard to make progress. I don't normally like to say, oh, well, that person's incorrigible. I mean, that, that can happen. But I mean, it it's complicated, right? Like, sometimes people argue things like that, and they're really arguing about something else. You just have to figure out what's really going on here. Sometimes they're trolling you. So, like, it's very complicated. Um, but there, I mean, it does, there are base, you know, base level facts that you just sort of have to accept to get started in philosophy. Like, if I just refuse to exist that anything other than me exists, there's, there's going to be a lot of constraints on my philosophizing. And if you try to convince me that you exist, by talking to me or smacking me, I'll just go, well, like, the hallucination of you existing is very complicated right now. You know what, I can, I, you know what, I can just keep saying that, right? I'm trying to decide whether there's another issue, though. Um, there's this interesting question of whether you could say that everything in the world needs a cause. And then there's this other question, does that mean that the world needs a cause, right? And one must be careful not to move too quickly here, um, because it's not always true that you can infer about a collection what's true of each member of the collection, right? It's the fallacy of composition. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that the world is like a thing other than all the individual things in it. But that's like a tricky question. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.